Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Andy will be answering questions submitted by you in no particular order. Our first question this week comes from John. He asks, can you talk about MMT and inflation, M2 increasing but no inflation, and how does inflation relate to small banks? So today we have three questions on inflation. First, about MMT, modern monetary theory and inflation. The second on M2 growth and inflation. And the third, small banks and inflation. I'm not actually 100% clear where the last question, whether it's in regards to small banks as a transmitter of inflation or what effect inflation would have on small banks, but I'll try and take a stab at both. So first, MMT, modern monetary theory. The gist of MMT is that countries that issue their own currency should not worry about fiscal deficits. They should, in fact, spend a lot and have central banks, whether independent or not, finance the deficits through monetization Fed central bank buying government debt, usually with a caveat, as long as interest rates are low and there's slack in the economy. I think in one form or another, MMT has been around as long as there have been fiat currencies and central banks. So, you know, quite a while, certainly a good portion of the last hundred years. Japan, for the better part of a generation, has run very large fiscal deficits and has monetized a very meaningful percentage of them. Japan has not had an inflation problem, though nobody considers Japan a sterling economic success. As always, I think the results of deficit spending financed by central banks are situation dependent and entirely a function of both what happens to the money on the first round, so what the government is spending it on, but more importantly, what happens to the money in the banking system, the money multiple, as one is creating bank reserves, one is potentially creating eight to ten times that amount of money. And obviously, what amount of money is created, which is not you know, a direct function of the deficit spending and the amount of monetization. So both the amount of the money that's created and where it goes is determinant of whether there's inflation. I would hearken back to what I've said in previous talks that I think the fallacy and the shortcoming of economic thinking over the last generation really is the view of inflation as a consumer price phenomenon where it's been almost entirely an asset price phenomenon. So again, in the most recent round, of money creation, we've seen a dramatic reinflation of financial assets, which essentially all financial assets valued more highly than they were pre-pandemic, even the ones whose obvious economic prospects have deteriorated. To a certain degree, asset inflation has a dampening effect on consumer price inflation. I mean, think again of the fracking revolution and the ability of every fracker to access cheap capital certainly increased the supply of energy and exercised a dampening effect on consumer prices. 
So I think this applies very much to the question about M2, you know, basically money circulating, money being used in transactions, and the effect of growth of M2 on inflation. I think the growth of M2 is actually somewhat more interesting than the amount of debt being monetized, which is basically the growth of the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed's balance sheet is potential money. M2 is actual money. There's been very dramatic growth in M2 over the last 6 and 12 months, something like a 24% annual rate, I read somewhere, which almost certainly has to produce inflation again, but my inflation, question of whether it's asset price inflation or consumer price inflation. I think again, as I said in a previous podcast, I really think inflation has to be viewed primarily as a supply phenomenon. So one of the things you know they talk about, the advocates of MMT suggest is we can have Medicare for all financed by the Fed purchasing government bonds. I think it's a virtual certainty that Medicare for all would increase demand for medical services, do nothing for supply. So either tremendous price pressure, which presumably is mitigated by effectively government price controls, but then shortages and rationing. As to the effect of small banks and inflation, I don't see small banks as as really having the capability of producing meaningful money supply growth, pushing out loans to a degree that that activity meaningfully moves money supply. And as to the effect, again, I don't know, and it's very difficult to tell with any degree of accuracy, but I don't think most small banks have meaningful inflation risk on their balance sheets which is to say most of them, I think, have pretty well-contained interest rate risk that you know, their assets and their liability are reasonably well-matched. So if inflation led to higher interest rates, I don't see that producing a crisis in banking. The caveat being there is risk of real estate deflation would be bad for almost all banks, so that I would say there's more deflation risk in small banks than inflation risk. I was asked to speak a little further about my investment principles, having mentioned one or two of them in a previous podcast. I can actually summarize and divide them into two broad categories. The first is that return comes from the efficient reduction of risk, and one should always be thinking about how one reduces risk as opposed to what risk can I take. So roughly half of the 10 investment principles fall under that category, but could actually be subsumed in just the first. The second principle, which I don't think I've ever stated as a principle, is that thinking works. The principle challenges of investing and many other things are not intellectual, are not a matter of analytic capabilities and resources. The challenges of investing and good decision-making across 
all sorts of realms are primarily psychological. I think there's a lot of evidence that we carry a lot of cognitive biases, but also that we evolved much more to react than to think. So one principle is that if events are swirling, stuff is happening, you know, stocks are moving dramatically, or a company owns reported a bad quarter, or they're you know, making a significant acquisition, or whatever it might be. When stuff is happening, step back and think. Slow down. While it's true, prices will move in the next 30 seconds, minute, you know, what have you, when stuff is going on. Those movements are more or less random, and the return to reacting and guessing in the moment will be random too. In almost all decision-making in the modern world, instantaneous decisions, even quick decisions, are not required. I think in one white box letter, you know, when you encounter a bear, it matters whether it's a black bear or a brown bear, you're actually supposed to do the opposite thing. But, you know, that is a situation where, you know, one has to actually react in the moment. There aren't very many of those in modern life and certainly not many of them in investing. I believe the most significant human cognitive bias and the hardest to overcome is what's called confirmation bias. You have a thesis, you have something you believe, and that belief serves to filter for all the incoming information you see and uh, the information that confirms your prior view, your thesis, is seen, is weighted, is given prominence. Any evidence that might be contrary to one's thesis is discounted if noted. It's really, really hard to both see this happening and to overcome it if it is. One common investment tool slash trick slash procedure that lots of people employ are stop-loss orders. So you buy a stock at 100 thinking it's worth 200 it trades down to 80 and that automatically triggers an order to sell. I've heard many managers, many advisors, many people recommend using stop-loss orders. I would say two things. First, as an analytic and intellectual matter, this technique is incoherent. It doesn't make sense to say, we bought a stock at 100 because we think it's worth 200, but if it goes from 100 to 80, that means that the thesis must be wrong. You know, it couldn't be worth 200 if it could trade down from 100 to 80. So why then is this technique, you know, so widely employed and recommended? And I think the proponents will tell you it's not a tool of analysis. It's a tool of psychology and a tool of emotion that while one is long the stock, one is wedded to the $200 price target thesis, one's views are going to be skewed. It's an attempt to eliminate confirmation bias. Get out, start over, rethink. Now, you know, and again, the proponents of the use of stop losses don't 
require that the stock be put in the permanent penalty box. In fact, most will say you could buy it the next day or the next week. It's a trick to get one to take their time to think, to start over without the impediment of confirmation um, bias. I've never been a proponent of stop loss orders just because their analytic incoherence bothers me too much. I don't think it's the best device in terms of resetting one's mind, in terms of stripping one's thought process from emotion, hope, and so forth. My recommendation is much more early imagination and early kind of pre-commitment before the exigencies of the moment, before biases come in, so that whenever one has a hypothesis, one should think very hard about what it is that would falsify that hypothesis, what you know, different scenarios are and how they should be interpreted. And that, as much as possible, that should be done in advance and potentially even in writing instead of as a matter of reaction on the fly. You know, I also think it's very important to be aware of one's psychological makeup, to structure one's strategy in a way that's consistent with that. And to give another investment diversion example. You see a stock drops from 100 to 50 in the real world. Whether an individual does nothing, keeps the same position, doubles down, you know, buys, you know, twice as much to have the same dollar exposure or sells. Most of the time you can predict what somebody is going to do absolutely independent of the circumstances of the drop from 100 to 50. Some people are very disposed to wanting to double down, being, you know, risk-seeking in avoiding losses. Some are inclined to automatically sell, you know, the flight recess. Some are inclined to, to be paralyzed. I think it's, you know, important to realize who one one is and structure the kinds of things one does that will mitigate the potential for poor decision making based on emotion. So we state as an investment principle, don't ask yourself or require yourself to do things that psychologically are impossible or painful or extremely difficult for you to do. And I think, again, what I've called the psychological challenges of investing really apply for all decision making. And and I'd add, first of all, thinking and decision-making require a lot of effort, will, concentration. It's a scarce resource. And so I think it's actually important, again, to have a structure that protects that resource, that is cognizant that nobody has the energy, the will, or the concentration to make a very large number of important decisions in a compressed period of time. Very famously, Jim Simons and Renaissance, obviously the most successful investor of all time, he began as a discretionary investor, as somebody who decided, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy it, or sell that, or what have you. And every buy and sell was an active decision initiated and required of him. He fairly 
quickly, which is to say, you know, you know, I don't know, a year or two, saw that as impossible and resolved to develop systems and to never overrule his systems. And I think it's not because the systems never came up with something that he knew within a high degree of certainty to be wrong or bad. It was one that if you could change the system in an ad hoc way, you would never make it better. So it was a demand and a requirement to always make their systems better in response to error. So no ad hoc fixes of errors, but only a fully improved model. And two, you know, that his energy, his resources, his finite will and capacity couldn't be directed to making, you know, daily trade decisions and and that overload, but was better spent thinking bigger. And I think, you know, understanding how hard decision making is, how much energy it takes and the demands that one can actually place on themselves is really important in any other decision-making environment. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. Andy will be taking a short break, but will return February 26th. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.